This is the Education Gadfly Show. Lionel Messi and, and LeBron James probably are pretty close geometrically, right? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Go to the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker. Flying around at home right now. That is indeed the truth. Hello, Checker. Nice to see you on Zoom, which is how we are recording this podcast. Our first time we have ever tried this fancy technology for recording all of us away from the office. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. Um, it's actually uh, very comfortable for, for so far. All right, indeed. Well, we are obviously going to talk about what this coronavirus crisis means for our schools. Uh, we have been writing about it to our listeners. Sorry, we were not able to pull off a podcast last week, uh, but we think we have figured it out uh, going forward so that we can do this coming from home. If the sound quality is not quite as good as usual, you understand why. We don't have all our fancy equipment that is at our offices where none of us are, but, uh, but we're going to give it a good show Let's talk about what this all means, uh, some of the challenges so far, how those are being overcome, and what comes next in the short term. Let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Checker. Well, you know, both of us have been writing, well, I've been tweeting, you've been writing about, about a major concern last week was, was that the federal government, the Department of Education, put out some guidance, especially the Office for Civil Rights reminding districts that they had to pay attention to the civil rights of students with disabilities during this crisis. And the way they wrote it made it sound like if districts tried to serve anybody online via distance learning, they better make sure they serve their students with disabilities uh, in line with federal law or else they could get in trouble. And so a lot of districts took that as, oh, well, we better not do anything. We would be safer just uh, kind of sitting on our hands. As you pointed out last week in a Gadfly post, the good news is Secretary DeVos, to her credit, acted and changed the guidance. This is praiseworthy, yes? It is praiseworthy. I mean, at a time when districts were scrambling, many of them were flat-footed, caught flat-footed by this this sort of abrupt shutdown, uh, which looks like it's going to go on for a very long time now for most of the country, maybe the whole country, we'll see. The uh, districts scrambling to get something going online and to see federal guidance that read as if, well, we don't have enough lifeboats for everybody on the ship, so nobody gets into any of them. Uh, that yeah. was just insane. And you and a lot of other folks pushed back pretty hard for common sense at the Department of Education. And faster than usual, you actually got some. Yeah, well, I can't take too much credit for that. But but look, and, and to be sure, it's a tough issue. I mean, I certainly got the clear picture on social media about how angry the special education parents, uh, many of them are at school districts that even in normal times are not serving their students well or, or in their view, living up to their legal obligations. It's a very adversarial relationship. And so they are concerned, rightfully so, that the districts are going to ignore their kids during this time. On the other hand, you know, let's face it, it's going to be hard to figure out how best to serve some students with disabilities via distance learning if they are used to having a lot of literally hands-on help while they are at school. And so uh, we need to walk and chew gum. The, you know, districts need to get distance learning up and running for everybody and work as hard as they can and fast as they can on, on making it work as well as possible for kids with disabilities. But to say that until we have that all figured out, we're not going to provide it to anyone seemed, seemed crazy. And well, it looked uh, like Secretary DeVos agreed. 
One of the big challenges in distance learning uh, by the, at the school or district level is any kids that need or crave individualized attention. They don't have to necessarily be uh, kids with disabilities. It could be a kid who's lagging in reading that needs some reading tutoring. It could be a super advanced kid that needs some special uh, opportunities to uh, accelerate. It's going to be very difficult for schools and teachers that are trying to do anything at all online right now to customize for individual needs of all sorts. And that's going to be one of the big challenges. That is one of the big challenges they're dealing with right now. So let's talk about that going forward. You know, there's a million big questions about what happens three months from now, six months from now, you know, whenever the schools can open up again. But in the very short term, what is fair for us to expect schools and districts to be able to do? What should they be held accountable for, if anything? Well, they, they need to be delivering some kind of organized instruction. And uh, if their own curriculum is not suited to it, or if their own teachers are not able to do what you and I are doing right now, which is to get on Zoom with their kids, where they don't have enough kids, not enough of their kids have access to technology, then they have to deliver something that can be dealt with on a phone or on a uh, tablet or possibly at the neighbor's house in situations where kids aren't actually uh, confined to quarters and uh, delivering something, any kind of lessons. I don't know how many districts already have in the hopper online versions of their regular fourth grade curriculum, let's say. If not, they have to improvise with a lot of the excellent stuff that exists online right now. It just isn't organized for Miss Jones's fourth grade class. How Ms. Jones or her elementary school or her district can take material which is available that is appropriate for fourth graders who currently aren't doing anything and get it get it moving and then find out whether the kids are, I mean, organize the kids and the parents so that uh, uh, everybody uh, is told that all the kids, they have an obligation to do this for, I don't know, two hours a day and then tabulate whether they're doing it or not. And by the way, it does seem uh, like, you know, it doesn't have to be all online. I mean, you can figure out ways to get printed packets to kids, for example. Uh, schools are figuring out how to get lunches to kids so you could, you know, do that, do the printed packet thing correct. as well, right? I mean, there is a there's an old-fashioned version of distance learning uh, that, that can be used in this uh, episode. Sure. I mean, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, Calvert Learning was sent mailing packets to foreign service officers stationed in Pakistan um, yeah. in order to that they could have lessons from an American school. Uh, and that was all hard copy stuff that arrived in the mail. And, your, and the feeding program, as you say, is, is similar. Districts have an obligation to do their darndest. Uh, to get those lunches to uh, kids who depend on them for, for nutrition. So no, it doesn't have to all be online. Some schools we read are, are using the telephone for teachers to contact parents and kids mm -hmm. uh, and a technology that pretty much everybody has right now. And again, uh, yeah, you, you look at what Eva Moskowitz and her school's Success Academy, they're calling their elementary school kids twice a day, check in with them at an appointed hour. Amazing. And they're, of course, up and running immediately. Thousands and thousands of kids in 30-some schools in New York City, which is, which is currently confined to quarters, I believe. Yeah, that's right. But is, is accountability the wrong word to use right now, Checker? I mean, should we just say, look, what, whatever schools do, we should just understand they're, they're going to, you know, let's hope they do the best they can. If they don't, there's nothing we can do about it. Or should there be, you know, should states be thinking about, hey, how about we survey parents or we find some mechanism to get some feedback loops going here in case there are some schools or districts that really aren't doing much, aren't doing as much as they could be right now? 
there needs to be a push um, as well as a pull from the uh, kids and families and parents. So the push has to come from, in the case of individual schools, from the district level or the charter network. Uh, In the case of uh, districts, it needs to come from the state. I mean, Maryland, where I live and you live, has got 24 districts, and it's very based on historical evidence, uh, you can fairly assume that some of them are going to be out front doing this as well as they can, and others are going to be either just don't know how or don't think they have the resources all or the savvy. So yes, a push needs to come. That can take so many different forms. Uh, it, uh, but somebody's got to be looking over the shoulder, figuratively speaking, of districts and of schools or too much is not going to happen. All right. We will leave it there. Well said, Checker. Thanks again, Checker Finn. Joining us, it is now time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. back to the show uh, how's it going there on the distance work i think i'm buzzing we've discovered i hope i'm not going to drive people nuts but the distance learning is going well as long as our, our audio turns out okay i guess yes you do sound sound a little close to your microphone all right well we've warned our listeners that the audio quality is not going to be uh, meet our, our regular high standards but i think they will understand given the circumstances so here we go hey uh, can you imagine back in your high school english teaching days if you had to switch to online teaching all of a sudden that would have been rough this was before the days of you know too much online learning back then so uh, i think i would have been like many teachers mailing home packets which is not ideal you know but maybe in english you know read this book and write an essay and then mail it back that can work maybe the uh, students can teach the teachers mike uh yeah that there's probably a lot of that going on i imagine all right well amber you know as we've told our our readers and listeners we're going to we focused a lot on the coronavirus crisis, but we're going to do other things as well. Because, hey, uh, you know, we all need some distraction at times. And, uh, and the important work of education research will help us once things get back to normal. So what you got for us? Uh, we have a new NBER working paper from eight authors. Most of them are from Harvard or the BLS agency. They examine the extent to which workers without bachelor's degree can help fill the skills gap. And that's this gap that occurs when the demand for a skilled workforce is increasing faster than the supply of workers with college degrees. So um, it's, it's a descriptive study. It's pretty fascinating. Um, it identifies workers without BA degrees who are potentially skilled through alternative routes. So they call that STARS, skilled through alternative routes. Basically means, I think, on-the-job experience. They use the data on the skill requirements of jobs in this ONET database. I think a lot of people are familiar with that one. It's this huge comprehensive database, and it's got a ton of occupational information to different skills that are required for sundry occupations. They compute the skill distance between a worker's current occupation and a higher wage occupation with similar skill requirements in their local labor market. And they use the current population survey to sample the worker population. That's this monthly household survey that provides loads of labor force and economic statistics. So for each worker in the current population survey under a declared occupation, that ends up being about 68 million total workers. They match the ONET skill requirements for that same occupation to the worker. Then based on the skills of the current population, they calculate the Euclidean distance between the skill vector of the worker's current occupation to a potential destination occupation. 
Do they have the same skills to qualify them for a destination occupation that's presumably better than the one they've got? To identify these potential pathways to these higher wage destination jobs, they search for destination jobs that are close in the skill space to their origin job. And they currently employ some workers without BA degrees. In the recent past, they've hired workers from the origin job who didn't possess a BA degree, and they pay higher average state to work medium wages than the origin job. So basically, they're looking for like these pathways that are feasible based on the fact that they have recently hired workers who don't have a BA degree and that pay better wages than the job that these workers have. Got all that? Not really, but okay. <laughs> but Percy did. I have a couple questions, but I'll save them. Okay. To characterize these plausible transitions, they develop a taxonomy of stars, these alternate routes, uh, which again are workers without the BA degree who, based on their skills of the current occupation, are indeed skilled enough compared to the traditional BA degree. All right. Key finding, they find that of the 68 million workers without BA degrees in the U.S., 30 million are rising stars, meaning that their skills are compatible with working in destination jobs with average earnings that are higher by about $11 an hour. And then their second key finding is another 33 are forming stars, meaning that their skills are compatible with working in destination jobs with average earnings that are about $7 an hour higher. So in short, the basic point is that the, their data supports the key finding that the skills developed on the job by many workers are compatible with requirements of many higher paid jobs. And then they give a ton of examples, but I'll just give you one because I know my time is up. So for approximately 40% of occupations in the personal care and service occupational group, that's the group with the lowest national median income, the predicted transitions based on the skill distance thing I was just telling you about um, are to other roles within that major group. So they, their matches were mostly in that same group. But for about 20% of the jobs within that personal care group, there were potential pathways that had much greater mobility. And they were linked primarily to jobs in educational instruction and office and admin support. So they, jobs in those roles, similar skill set, but paid much higher average median wages than the personal care service group that they were currently in. We'll stop there. Amber, is the, is the point that people are learning these skills on the job as opposed to by getting a BA? Is that sort of the, the point of the study? That's the point of the study. Or is it simple? Okay. The, the BA is signaling something, obviously, because we're still seeing that folks with a BA are, you know, getting paid higher wages. But their idea is that, that you know, maybe we need to look at other signals beside the BA, which are the skills that folks are gaining uh, on the job. And then that, you know, presumably would, if we looked at that, then they could have more potential for, you know, better paying jobs if we were also looking at the skills that gained on the job. No, I mean, look, I think that makes sense. Our friend Rick Hess has been writing a lot about this, about how we need to move away from using the BA uh, for jobs that don't really need it. It also reminds me of in the military, and I'm going to forget now what they call it, but when an enlisted, enlisted person, you know, meaning they came into the military without a college degree, they can get tapped for training to become an officer, which, you know, usually reserved for people with college degrees, right? And, uh, and there's some process that they can go through. Because when, you know, you see somebody who's got the talent and skills to be an officer, but don't have that credential, and they've got some sort of uh, alternate route into that. Um, so maybe that's what we need in, in more parts of our society. Yeah, I guess I have two sort of semi-skeptical questions. I mean, I get that it's a descriptive study, <laughs> right? I mean, one is whether really we're able to measure skills in a way, and, and not just, you know, skills aren't binary, but really measuring the quality of people's skills in a way that is really allowing 
for these sorts of comparisons. My other question is kind of, it's a little bit weird and technical, but but hopefully it's intuitive, right? I mean, if if the point is that the geometric distance between, you know, two jobs is smallest, that's sort of is implicitly putting all types of skills on a, this, on a similar playing field, right? And assuming that there's no particular skill that is a must-have, right? So, for example, you might, many of the skills that police and firemen might require might be similar, right? So those might be similar you know, similar jobs where they might have it appear to be similar if you just sort of took the least distance between them. But it's obviously essential to be able to fire a gun as a, as a police officer, right? And it's essential to know how to put out fire as a fireman, in addition to sort of all these other sort of people skills and, and sort of general public safety skills that are common to both. So I guess I'm just a little bit skeptical that we can really know which transitions are plausible if we're not getting at kind of the must-haves, which are sometimes really challenging, right? I mean, they're particular jobs, ones that tend to be really hard to fill. Are these jobs where, you know, in addition to human sort of, you know, human general human capital, there are these very specific technical skills that you must have that employers are looking for? Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. I guess I'm just a little bit skeptical that we can just sort of map the transitions that people can make mathematically. I don't know. It's There's a lot going on there. Yeah, and I don't know whether ONET, you know, weights particular skills differently, you know, in and, in and of itself in terms of how they structure those skill sets. And, right, this this distance is really just the, the straight point, right, that's connecting sort of two points, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and right. just saying that this skill can be connected to this one, you know. Right, like Lionel Messi and, and LeBron James probably are pretty close geometrically, right? But that doesn't mean that Messi can play in the NBA. I think that's right. That was amazing, David. You just pulled that out. Yeah, I got it on the second time around. Yeah. I had no idea, incidentally, this is neither here nor there, I had no idea how much I cared about sports until these last few days. I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this way. It <laughs> turns out sports are essential to life, and without them, life has no meaning. <laughs> David, you have a newborn son. Wait, wait, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also essential. That's the whole point. There's many necessary but insufficient oh. conditions for a good life, just oh. as there are for getting a job. That's really, oh, wow, brought it all back together. Well done there, David. All right, hey, we're going to leave it there. Amber, thank you. Fascinating stuff. Appreciate you bringing that to us. Of course, uh, who knows how this, what this labor market's going to look like when things uh, get back to normal. But here's, here's hoping uh, that that normal will, will return ASAP. All right, everybody. We'll be back again next week. But until then, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Trilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.